Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is from Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. This proverb is the biblical equivalent of our, of our, our proverb, what goes around comes around. Here we see a deep truth about how God created the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this proverb today is a corollary of that great truth. Our God is a great defender of the poor. He is their buckler and shield. He provides for them and he repays those who offend them. If love, mercy, and generosity are the fulfillment of God's law, then cruelty, lack of compassion, and hard-heartedness are the breaking of it. And this sort of behavior has consequences. In the grand scheme of things, we are all poor. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. Similarly, Paul tells Timothy, we brought nothing into the world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And life is not static. The world does not stand still. Things change and circumstances change. And in this, mercy is rewarded and callousness is punished. The merciful will find mercy, but the pitiless will be shown no pity. They receive their just deserts, and ultimately they will answer to God for their actions and behaviors even if their judgment never comes before death. This proverb is a grave warning and one we do well to heed. Love those who are less fortunate than yourself. Reach out to the poor. Give to the hungry and to the destitute. Then you will find favor with God and men, because love is the fulfillment of all the law. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so please kneel if you're able. Last week we started in Acts chapter 15, and today we continue. Uh, we left off in the middle of the Jerusalem Council. And this, and if you remember, this is at the center of the book of Acts. So this is a, a key point. It's, it's the closing of the chapter of Peter, and it's the and, uh, it, Paul's been introduced. He's been a main character in the last couple chapters. Um, and, and this is right where he just is, this is his taking off point for really going out into the world in earnest. So the gospel started in Jerusalem, it's gone out, but now there's a, a question that has arisen um, that, that needs to be adjudicated, it needs to be decided. And so we left off in the middle of the council where this question 
was being uh, worked out because the false teachers, remember the, the false teachers from Judea had gone up to Antioch and taught that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And this teaching created quite a stir, um, especially with Paul and Barnabas, who had recently returned from a very successful mission to the Gentiles. And they, they knew that the Gentiles were very much saved and that they were very much not circumcised. So they knew the lie of this false teaching. And so um, they, they had a big dispute, a fight in Antioch. And so the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem, south but up, up the, up the hill, up to Jerusalem to seek out the apostles and the elders of the church uh, that the issue could be resolved. And along the way, they, 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 they preached the gospel, they witnessed to the churches what God had been doing in their ministry. And when they arrived in, in Jerusalem, they encountered believing Pharisees who contradicted what they were saying. They, the Pharisees were, were telling them that, that they, they were in agreement with the false teachers up in Antioch. And they were telling them they, they, that the, the Gentiles still needed to keep the laws of Moses and they still needed to be circumcised. And, uh, um, and this created a great dispute until Peter stood up. He quieted the crowd by telling them of his experience in the conversion of Cornelius and his household, the first Gentile converts. And this is this is very much review. This is what, this is what we were talking about last week. And Peter rightly pointed out that salvation is based on nothing more and nothing less than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Gentiles were saved in the same manner as. Anybody is saved, as all of the believing Jews in the church in Jerusalem has saved. And that's by believing in Jesus Christ and by His grace. And that's where our text picks up today. Peter has quieted the crowd. He's given his witness of what had happened with the first Gentile converts. And then Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Paul, they're given their opportunity now to witness in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. This is the way that the point is carried forth. Barnabas and Paul aren't... This isn't a a detailed theological argument. This isn't a set of propositions and, and counter-arguments. It's, this, is, this is just merely giving testimony of what has happened. They have no shortage of data. Paul and Barnabas have been active in the ministry for many years now. And by the, in fact, by this point, Barnabas and Saul have been working together for about seven years. They had they'd been, they'd been based out of the church in Antioch. They had, which was a largely Gentile church, and they'd gone on a missionary trip for about two years, and they'd been back from that for about another year, and God had done many miracles and wonders by their hands. And you can remember how the Gentiles had responded tremendously well to the gospel when they presented it. Remember as we were going through the, Paul's missionary journey in, in Turkey? In fact, the Gentiles responded so well to the gospel that the Jews were jealous of the apostles, so they started to counteract the gospel. So the Gentiles responded better to the gospel than the, than, than the Jews did. Within the year before this conference, Paul had written the book of Galatians. 
to the young churches of Galatia. And the primary point of that book, the primary point of that epistle was to counteract the very issue at stake in this council, that, that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Paul says, no, you're going backwards if you do that in the book of Galatians. And so, so Paul and Barnabas were very passionate about this point when they show up in Jerusalem. Because they were there when the Gentiles had received the gospel. And they were there. They saw the Spirit in their midst. They saw the fruit of the Spirit in their midst. They saw the joy of salvation. They saw the love of fellowship and the, 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 the peace of community. The unity that was, that was evident in the body of Christ, in the church, among Gentile Christians. They had seen the work of God and they proclaim it now to the church in council. And their message was powerful. It silenced the multitude and it worked because story is convicting. In God's story, which is what Paul and Barnabas are telling, this is what God did. That story is compelling. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, man and brethren, listen to me. So, Paul and Barnabas get up, and they, we don't get a long story about what Paul and Barnabas did, or what Barnabas and Paul did. Um, that, that's, not, that's not what the point of the, 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 the narrative here is. Luke has just been telling us what Barnabas and Paul did. We know that story. What Luke is telling us in verse 12 is that Barnabas and Paul are telling the Jews in Jerusalem what they have been doing. And the result is that the multitude kept silent and and uh and they became silent they were they were just awed by this story of god's work and now and now we have james speaking james was an apostle an apostle and but he was not one of the 12. he was the brother of jesus christ and he's the james who's credited with writing the book of james authoring the book of james in the bible and after the resurrection, he quickly became a central figure in the Jerusalem church. So that by this point, we see his wisdom and authority recognized in the text. It, it's evident that he has a position of power and authority, like Peter. In the book of Galatians, Paul recognized James along with Peter and John as those who seemed to be pillars in the church at Jerusalem. And now James speaks up and he recognizes both Peter's witness and supports Peter and Paul and Barnabas from the scriptures, verses 14 to 17. Simon has declared how God in the, at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. This is a, so James says, Peter's told us what God did. And what happened, what Peter has told us, is consistent with the scripture here. And then he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will re rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, 
so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. James' point is that God first took out of the Gentiles a people for his name. This is, this is something that is evidence, it's truth, this is, this is history, this happened. And Paul and Barnabas are declaring that what God started with Peter and Cornelius is an ongoing work. This is a, it's, it, this is a beautiful and, a, and a, it, it's a beautiful thing and God is growing a people that are called by his name from out of the rest of the rest of mankind, from out of the Gentile peoples. He's calling a people to, to call to follow him and to worship him so that they may be set apart. And yet they're still Gentiles. And it's this new development is not what the Jews were looking for. But James is telling us right here that it's consistent with how God always intended to work because he revealed that to us already in his scriptures. Where when he quotes from Amos chapter nine, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Then in verse eighteen, James says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. And this is a that's an interesting verse. Known to God from eternity are all his works. So it's it kind of you're trying to figure out what does he mean by that in this context? And what it means is that because God is eternal and omniscient, because God has done everything and God knew what he was going to do beforehand. His current working cannot be inconsistent with his past revelation. Known to God from eternity are all his works. So he knew beforehand what he's doing right now. And that and, and this text right here from Amos chapter 9 proves that God knew what he was going to do in the future. Now, when we had this text and we didn't have God's revelation about how that was going to work out, we couldn't see how that worked. But what James's point here in this council is that we must accept God's recent revelation and it must inform our interpretation of the past and his past revelation. We must connect the dots. We must look back to, James, to, to Amos and say, whoa, this is God working, and, he, and this is we should have been looking for this. It's kind of like when Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? And nobody in Israel was looking for those things. But, but, and it's like when Paul goes to the Bereans and he tells that he brings the gospel to them. And what do they do? They go and they search the scriptures to see if these things are so, to see if these things are true. And that's what James is saying is these things are true because the scriptures do affirm them. In other words, James says we must change our expectations for the salvation of the world so that they conform with God's revelation of the salvation of the world. We, it, it's very common for man to not understand what God is doing. We, we do create these expectations of him and how he's supposed to work. But he's not confined by our restrictions. The Jews' restrictions that it must be a Jewish 
gospel and, 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 and the, the, the thinking of these believing Pharisees that the Gentiles have to be circumcised was wrong. And God was not constrained by that, and it was evidenced in the fruit of the gospel among the Gentiles, and it was evidenced in both Peter's experience and in Paul and Barnabas' experience, and in the experience of the Gentile Christians. So James says, we must change our expectation so that it conforms with God's revelation, because God is doing this. And then he says, verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And here he stands with Peter and Barnabas and Paul against the Pharisees. He's saying, we, if, if, if this is our expectation, that, that the, the Gentiles have to be circumcised, then we're wrong. And so we cannot, we cannot trouble them. We cannot, we cannot take away their assurance of salvation. We cannot, we cannot stop them from walking in the way that God has called them to by saying it's not good enough. Because Jesus is good enough. But he doesn't leave it there. He, he recommends a few caveats. He says, we should not trouble the Gentiles, but, verse 20, 20 and 21, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So when James suggests that they not trouble the Gentiles, he means to encourage and strengthen their faith. Let's not make them doubt their salvation. But it does not mean that their new faith shouldn't affect their actions or behaviors. It's, okay, so they don't have to get circumcised in order to be saved. That was a lie. That was wrong. But it still means that, that there, there should be some changes. So James recommends these four prohibitions. Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled in blood. But then he tells us why he recommends these prohibitions. He says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city. The reason why he's recommending these prohibitions is because salvation is of the Jews. It's through the God of the Jews and through the scriptures of the Jews. And these things in particular, these four things that he prohibits for the Gentiles, were culturally abominations to the Jews. They were abominations to the culture of Judaism. In other words, James wants to bring them into the believing community. He wants them to be baptized. He wants them to be a member of the church. But he wants to be careful to preserve the unity of the church by not creating unnecessary bumps, unnecessary um, difficulties. He wants to preserve the unity of the church. And, and what he's saying here by asking them to refrain from uh, blood and things strangled and sexual immorality and things polluted by idols, well, the first thing is, is those are the trappings of, of idolatry, of false worship. So... On the one hand, for Gentiles, you know, that was something that they were coming out of, and it would have been something that they would have been, they could confuse or commingle worship of the true God if they were to continue doing the things uh, that they would associate with false worship. 
So he's, he's helping to purify them that way. But, but more so, bringing the Gentiles in should not push the Jews out of the church. So, so if the Gentiles were welcomed in, it was a small thing to ask of them to refrain from offending their new brothers in the Lord, these Jewish Christians, unnecessarily. So they prohibit these four things. And next we see that James' judgment was well received in the agreement of the apostles and the elders to follow his advice, because they follow his advice in writing and sending out the Jerusalem decree, verses 22 to 29. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these things, these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, the main point of this letter was twofold. The, 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 for the first thing we see is that the, the church is all in agreement. The, the elders and the apostles and the whole church comes together and agrees that we, need to, we do need to send out this letter. They agree with James's recommendation. We need to write a letter. We need to send this out to them. And, and we, we read the letter, and it's uh, virtually the exact same thing as the recommendation of James. But the main point of the letter was twofold. It was first to encourage the Gentiles, and second to maintain the peace of the church. So the Gentiles were encouraged in the words of the decree. They said they, 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 they were encouraged in the words of the decree because, because they had heard that some who went out who, who said, you must be circumcised in order to be saved, and that's not true. Those words were encouraging to the Gentile believers. They, they knew then that, that the faith they had received from Paul and Barnabas or from anybody, any of the Christians who had come bringing it to them and that they had originally accepted was the true faith, that they weren't missing something yet. Um, and they were encouraged by the sending of messengers and ambassadors, uh, Barnabas and Paul, whom they knew, and Judas and Silas, who, who were from Jerusalem and had authority from the church there to be messengers and ambassadors, um, that, their, that their word of mouth would uh, sustain the message of the letter. So, so the first point was to encourage them, and the second was to maintain fellowship by certain instructions and commands, which we already covered. The Gentiles had already left idolatry for Jesus. But here they're asked to leave some of the trappings of idolatry, which would strain community. And, and notably, circumcision 
is not required. The, the, Paul does not, or, or not, not Paul, the church does not add a new law to the law of Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that is necessary to be saved. And that is a tremendous relief and a blessing to the growth and the development of the church. But now, about some application here. And the first thing I'd like to talk about is, is a little bit of an aside regarding the list of prohibitions, and specifically sexual immorality. It is clear from the rest of Scripture that only the sexual immorality listed here of these four prohibitions is a permanent restriction. The others, blood, food offered to idols, and things, as things strangled, they're, they're elsewhere permitted, um, as long as they don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. As long as they don't, as long as you're not breaking the bigger E on the I chart of breaking fellowship. So you're, you're better off to re refrain from any of that stuff if you're causing a weaker brother to stumble. But, um, but, but if, if that's not an issue, those things aren't prohibited. If we give thanks, then God, God, God blesses us with it. It's, it's, there's nothing in the blood, there's nothing in the meat, there's nothing uh, in the animals that are strangled that is uh, polluting. Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of it. Because what comes out of it comes out of the heart. So, it's, so, so the, 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 the physical stuff is not thing, dirty. But the Jewish Christians were weaker brethren in regard to these things. These things would have broken fellowship. Uh, they, 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 culturally, they didn't have the, 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 the ability to handle you know, adding that into within their community. Uh, these items were a, culturally a complete deal breaker for Jewish Christians. Like they just could—I mean, it was hard enough just for them originally just to go into the presence of Gentiles. Remember when Peter went to Cornelius? He's like, you know how it's not lawful for a man for for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile. So we know of, about the other, the other items that they're not permanent restrictions, but sexual immorality is. A permanent restriction. It doesn't work the same way as the other three restrictions. And it's because our bodies belong to our Lord. We cannot have unclean sexual relationships without being defiled. That actually defiles us. On, the, on this, the Bible is very clear. Because in the sexual relationship, the two become one flesh. And this is something that God created into the world with marriage. Um, Paul, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What that means is we can't just be spiritual in our faith. It has to have a, an effect on how we use our bodies and what we do with our bodies. It doesn't, it doesn't just not matter what we do with our bodies because we are spiritual. Our bodies are tied to Christ. I mean, when, when we baptized Helen this morning, she was brought into the church, and part of her is her body. Well, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to God, and so you may not pollute your body with sexual immorality. And so that is a permanent thing. But then that begs the question a little bit is why is then sexual immorality included with this list of other things that aren't permanent uh, permanent restrictions? Um, and the reason it is, is it's in this list is because it is just like the other things listed in that sexual immorality was closely united with false worship. It was closely united with idolatry. In fact, it was the form of worship for many of the false gods who were worshipped in that Gentile society. Sexual immorality, that, that's, that's one of the, the chief things that the devil uses to confuse men. And so it, 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 was, it was closely associated with false worship, just like things offered to idols and blood, which was considered uh, holy, and things strangled, which were all parts of the Gentile false gods' worship. So the first, it's very much an aside, sexual immorality is a permanent restriction. The other three are not. But all four of them were to be abstained for the sake of the unity of the church. The next lesson we can learn from our text is don't stick your finger in your brother's eye. Don't, don't be a stinker. Recognize your brother's foibles, work out the kinks, and love your brother. Don't discount God's ability to work among those who are different. People are uncomfortable with things or, or people that are different than them. It, it's, that's natural. We're not familiar with it, and there we, therefore we, we become uncomfortable with it. But God is working in our world, and our world is filled with a whole boatload of different kinds of people. Uh, there's different nationalities. Yeah, you know, that's... Basic Africans, Asians, Europeans, Indians, Russians, Natives. There's, they're different. And, and their differences bring with them different cultures. God can work there. Don't discount God's ability to work among different religions. God can work. Uh, he, there are missionaries that are successful in Muslim countries and, and among atheists and agnostics and Hindus and Buddhists and Wiccans and secularists and evolutionists and Catholics and Baptists and Reformed and Pentecostals and Amish. God's working in all of that. Now, some of them are, are not Christian. Some of them are, are subgroups within Christianity. We need to love our brother. And, we need, and who is our brother? It's who God puts in your path. And so that means it doesn't matter which background they're coming from. Your job is to communicate Christ to them, where they're at. We cannot discount God's ability to work among those who are different, among different subcultures within our community or our culture. Uh, you know, there's like a goth subculture where people wear all black and piercings and stuff. Or you know, Harley riders, the bikers, um, quilters, farmers. 
Big city people, people who work for GM or Ford, Chrysler, or even Toyota. You are who you are. And while you can be redeemed and saved, and it changes you at a core level, you don't become something entirely different. The relationship between seed and plant is strong. You can't plant corn and harvest beets unless you planted beets too. But you don't get the beets from the corn seed. Similarly, if you convert a person who grew up in a certain culture, his tastes and preferences don't just disappear. It, I mean, over time, maybe generations of time, things do change. Things become more homogenized and more similar. We work through these issues. Um, but it doesn't happen automatically. And in the meantime, when people are struggling with different things, our job is to love them where they're at. And in our text, this works two ways. First, there's the establishment who must be careful to encourage and protect the new believers, the church in Jerusalem. They are given a duty to, to protect the new believers. The church in Jerusalem must give the assurance of fellowship and unity to the Gentiles. They must recognize God's work and God's revelation. And what it means for us is that we can't become holier than that. We can't become holier than God. Because we think that we're, we're better than. We can't, God, he, he humbles himself. He dies to himself on our behalf. So we must be like him in that way and how we interact with others. We must submit to him in every way. And we must love as he loves. And we must love whom he loves. So that's the first way that this works. By not sticking your finger in the brother's eyes. That the establishment must protect the weak. The second is that. Those who appear weak must not become proud and arrogant in their salvation. The Gentiles must not become proud and arrogant. Instead, they must humbly submit to the church and forego some things that they might otherwise have enjoyed for the greater good, for the sake of community. And for us, this means that we need to be careful to be offensive only in the way that the gospel is offensive. And this is, Paul is very instructive in this in, in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. We're talking about there's the Gentiles. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So, don't stick your finger in your brother's eye, but be self-conscious about associating with your brother. Loving him by help, seeing it from his perspective empathizing with him, giving up the things that you know are okay, but aren't necessary for the sake of the greater good, for the gospel, for Jesus Christ. And finally, our text, this, this is the last application, our text shows us the advantages of councils and creeds and doctrines. 
The first century churches considered themselves covenantally connected to one another. And they didn't break fellowship over this doctrinal matter. They were willing and able to work out their differences across great cultural and physical distances because they correctly identified themselves with and under one Lord, Jesus Christ. So they weren't a bunch of lone rangers. They, they weren't a bunch of people who are like, well, me and my Bible and nobody else. We, we're, we, we're good. No, they cared about the body. They understood that Christ calls men to participate in a body. And that body necessitates fellowship and community. Which can be hard because a byproduct of fellowship and community is conflict. But here we see resolution. There's, there's, there's an answer to the conflict. Delegates are sent to Jerusalem. The church meets, convenes, and the decision is made. And the church grows, and God blesses it. And we didn't get, that, get to that today, but we're going to see that soon. That's what's going on here, is God's providing the work of the Spirit, which is love, and that is fruitful and it multiplies. So in church history bears this out. And that's why we stand on the shoulders of our forefathers... When we recite things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed every Sunday, these creeds we have for a reason, because the church came together to, to decide what it was that God taught in the Scriptures for us to believe about who He is and how He works. Likewise, our reading and studying of the Heidelberg and the Westminster Catechisms inform us and teach us of the application and understanding of Scripture to a greater degree. God is working in time, and in time we have further revelation of what He, what he is doing. There, these are further revelation from our God on the pages of history, and we can rejoice in His kindness in preserving them for us and in giving them to us. But ultimately their role is not to replace the Scriptures. Because that's death. We need the Word. We need Jesus. But the goal of the, the creeds and the councils and the catechisms is to point us to Jesus, to guide us and to enhance our walk of faith, by which the church ever grows and is conformed to the loveliness of the bride that she is called to be. And that's the loveliness that our Lord is making her into. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray.
to know His salvation. And in all this, God gives us His Spirit, by which we may know His presence and His comfort, and that He will carry us through to the end, transforming our lowly bodies to His glorious body, ultimately in the resurrection. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.